0: Hi, my name is Claire Mori, and I'm managing partner of specialist employment and partnership law firm CM Mori. I'm also the host of our law firm founder conversations podcast, where we speak with uh, law firm founders from around the world, uh, with a view to inspiring new founders, including more women and diverse firm owners. Um, sharing some practical tips on setting up and growing a law firm and sharing some war stories on some of the highs and lows of setting up a law firm and driving long-term growth and success. And sometimes even having a little bit of therapy as we go along as to, you know, some of the the, the issues that we encounter and how we get past them um, as law firm founders. And I am absolutely delighted today to be joined by Dr. Peter Allenson. Peter is the CEO of David jones Bold one of the UK's leading real estate specialist firms. Literally, they don't do anything else. It is sort of real estate RRs. It's so um, kind of super specialist as a a practice. The firm's got uh, around 50 lawyers and um, three main offices in London, Manchester and Birmingham and a business services centre in Taunton. So it's a national firm. All of the lawyers have more than 20 years Uh, PQE experience specifically on the whole range of real estate issues and the firm is recommended in in all variety of real estate related um, specializations within the legal directories um, legal 500 and chambers. Peter is someone who I know, I think very well, I feel is a very good friend. Um, And we talk about law firm, founder and growth issues all the time. And you are someone that I find incredibly engaging. I mean, you love, you love what you do. And you're so strategic. And I know that you, you read a lot about these issues. And you think a lot. So it's great to talk to you today. But can you just give us sort of the snapshot first about your, about your firm? And, and, make, and a bit of its genesis, and, and your vision.
1: Thank you very much, Steve Claire, and thank you for asking me to join in uh, this today. It's very kind of you. Um, yes, yeah, so I set up David Jones-Bold um, 22 years ago uh, with um, Madeline Davitt, um, Tim Sylvester Jones, and Stuart Bold. They were three uh, founding partners and solicitors, and then we set up as a partnership. Uh, I uh, went through the, the barrister route, and so, uh, wasn't one of the founding partners, and we just um, went from from there. I'd come from the world of business before I converted over to the bar, and so I'd had eleven years in industry, and that's what my my uh, doctorate is in chemical engineering. So I latterly moved to uh, qualifying as a lawyer and uh, and colleagues and I were uh, originally working in the government property lawyers, me as a as a pupil and the others as solicitors and the Government Property Lawyers, which had moved from London to Taunton, uh, of all places, but it's one of these out-of-town initiatives.
0: And do, so, so do you think having that industrial background, you know, your chemical engineering background, do you think that gave you, that even as you came in, you already had a different business perspective than perhaps someone, you know, like, like me, yeah.
1: who, yeah. you
0: know, started in the law right from the start?
1: Yeah, very much so. Um, an advantage, but also, a source of uh, frustration because I was looking at a very different world and, uh, you know, partnerships, law firms uh, run in their own way and have had a tradition of running in their own way for many hundreds of years. Um, That is a good thing, but it's also a challenge and a problem in many respects. And so, of course, the initial uh, formulation of the firm, my instinct was, well, do what other law firms do. Now, of course, never having worked in another law firm, um, you know, I, Sort of study them, read the Law Society book on setting up your own law firm, which I think was. We um, all uh,
0: read that book, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, which meant that the, we, I knew I had to get registered at the ICO. So we started off with really very much trying to mimic what other law firms did. But because of the experience, of my organisational experience and management experience, because I've been on a local board of a paper manufacturing company. And so uh, it had this sort of interplay, what I knew evolved as to how an organisation is run. And here I was setting a law firm and uh, growing a law firm, um, but in a totally different, in a in sort of different environment, different sort of way of things being done. And so bit by bit, a challenge, well, this is how it's done in other law firms. Mm. But does that really work? And I think really, when I look back to those days, or oh, was 22 years ago, uh, because because of the histrionics, because we set the firm up because they'd announced that the government wasn't going to have its own in-house legal property team anymore. Then the clients we went, uh, went for were for you know huge organisations, you know, Ministry of Defence, for instance.
0: So you were very clear as to who your client segment yeah, was? Yeah,
1: it, it was very, very clear. We didn't ever, uh, yes, may have wanted to uh, set up a law firm at some time or other, but the reality was, was that you know, and in business, opportunities come along, uh, either because you've got particular skill sets or because there is an opportunity in the marketplace or because the market's undersupplied uh, underprovided provided for a particular area. In this particular instance, it was, here is all of the central government clients going begging for lawyers, because that's what was happening. The department was being shut down, about 150 people there, and they told the staff first, they were made compulsory redundant, and then... Uh, They then told the clients, right, and these clients were told then, go and find your own lawyers in the private sector.
0: So, actually, something that was actually, in in some ways, personally a a challenge because you know people's jobs were at risk. Actually, was a huge opportunity for you and your colleagues, and to do it, and and you were looking at it originally in the traditional law firm way, but actually, I see you very much as you've been a disruptor. You've done, you've you've done, you've developed your business in a very different way, Mm. with which a lot of the rest of uh, the legal sector is now catching up. And we'll we'll come on to talk about that. But sorry, just to continue with your journey about you've got this very clear client group to start with uh, Mm. that you're targeting. And then so what were you over this sort of 22 year period? How have you developed your offering and um, to your value proposition?
1: It's an interesting uh, question because um, many of the principles behind setting up the firm Are actually still with us to this day. So, if I take the first one, how are you going to win the Ministry of Defence when you know you're going to be competing with big name firms, national firms, huge firms? And to put it in context, I think at the time the MOD had something like 32,000 sites throughout the UK. And they were, you know, you knew that they were going to be big law firms. And here we were, a small cluster of four. You know people setting up uh, a firm to say yeah we could do that yeah so how do we could differentiate ourselves? Well we had the specialist knowledge that of of government property work and so to start with we said right we need this really truly specialist people that know the DNA of that that portfolio and uh, so we only set up with the former advisory lawyers. Um, the very specialist ones that advise at the top level, the large transactional lawyers, and the rest no. And, and so we were able to then when we were pitching for that uh, first contract with MOD, we were able to say, well we've got specialist knowledge for the following reasons and this is the, the, the detailed knowledge that we have over the, uh, and have accumulated over a number of years. So we were appointed uh, onto the first panel that MOD had for its uh, state's department along with Eversheds, um, Bon Pierce, as they were called then, and Mitchell Wars. And of course, Little Old Us.
0: Like really long established, huge players in the market. Okay. And then there's the four of you who've established this new business.
1: Yeah. And so that 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 penchant for having true specialists people that really know the uh, expert are experts in that area sort of stuck with us and we kind of sort of almost it sounds a bit high-handed but sort of all set out to be the lawyer's lawyer so that we would actually be you know considered to be true specialists and and so that was the first principle Um, and you mentioned in your introduction that our, our, our lawyers are uh, 20 years plus but actually the benchmark is 10 years plus qualified but we do average about 23 years pqe so we do like experience and we like people that have got really uh, a very very detailed grasp they like to do the law of property rather than the management of 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 a team of lawyers
0: so when you're looking at talent it called. Mm. You're not looking at necessarily business people, people who can do sales, people who can do marketing and development. You're looking for pure, the best specialists you can get.
1: Yeah, well, yes, absolutely. And you point there to another part of our evolution, of course, in the very early days, it it was taken as read that uh, um, lawyers develop their clients, they develop the business and then they do the work. And if they've got too much, then they use somebody else in the team as well to support them. Um, and that's how we intend to start because that's how it always been done. But well, first of all with big big clients um, that are certainly institutional in nature, then there's a process you have to go for before the re- relationship building sometimes. and that is through tenders and through proposals so that you're effectively, and I think this is one of the uh, helping hands that we had in many respects is that that by tender process, it's really operating as a true meritocracy. You know, if you get the marks, you win. If you don't, then you lose. And so, therefore, the emphasis on relationship building wasn't there. Um, It was a pure, you know, um, I'd say meritocratic exercise.
0: And also, and this speaks to something that um, I was discussing with uh, Michael Kim in our last recording about building an institutionalized brand and relationships and pipeline rather than bringing together kind of a collective of individual practices under one sort of umbrella and the importance of the distinction so kind of are you sort of the netflix of the legal world or your place become the netflix of the real estate world because you're building kind of an institutional brand and institutional relationships that will not be so vulnerable when individual partners leave or arrive or you know um is that is that a fair?
1: Yeah, no absolutely i think i think uh, uh, as i say you know i'd love to think that i was a, a grand master designer of the perfect law firm but 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 i'm not and i don't know if anybody is you rummage around in the dark and uh, eventually you find what you are and so yes we, we i can remember in the first year we even had a half page yellow pages advert, um which is ludicrous now when i look back because we thought, well, you know, you cast the net and you're open for business and you get clients as best you can and from wherever you can. Mm -hmm. And, um, but actually we realized that you can't be all things to all people. And we very quickly started to realize we're good for bigger organizations who do value that value add that specialists can give. Mm -hmm. We actually make a difference to their success lawyers can sometimes be seen as a necessary evil so you know well we need a lawyer to do this and so therefore oh we'll go and find one and there you you could be in the territory of then uh cheap is his best and, and that, that's really how um, we started to consolidate that actually small organizations and the consumer were not going to be for us
0: Right, so being very clear as to who your, your client segments are. So then, so you so you, ha- you started off with the, the MLD uh, uh, sort of client work and very sort of targeted. And then, how did you go from there to then expanding out to where you are today, yeah. sort of, and expanding that vision?
1: Well, of course, um, you know, the first client in a new sector is always the most difficult to win. And, and thereafter, the fact that you build a track record. With a client in that sector, in this instance, MOD and Royal Parks were two first of, the, of our central government clients. And, um, and then, of course, you we are able to make then pitches to other central government clients and then display the track record you have. And so that's how it started to build central government. Some of them um, uh, at the time said, no, nope, you're too small. Um, nice to know that we now act for all of them. And um, But in those days, we were too small. About three years in, um, we then realised that the skill sets that we had would be very applicable to the local government sector. Now, uh, the government property lawyers wasn't allowed to work for the local government sector, it was just a policy decision, and that's just the way it was for them. But we didn't have such constraints as a private sector law firm, so um, we had a contact as it happened, and uh, one local authority, uh, and as a matter of overspill, gave us a try. And then, of course, then you start to build up the track record of doing work for a local authority, and so you're able to display that then when it comes to the tendering process with other local authorities. Mm. So that then grew.
0: There's one thing that I take from that is that actually, frustrating as it is, these things just take time. You know, we, we've had our five-year business plan, and we uh, you know, I've talked about in other recordings about you know doing the next five years, and things take longer and I think as a founder that's something you just have to get comfortable with.
1: And I think the thing is as well Claire that it's not just that it does certainly take long and you have to, so you have to, I'd always say be impatient and be passionate but at the same time uh, you see when you you don't get what your intention was then you try even harder and uh, as uh, as I've often said that in those early days in particular uh, we grew the business by joining up the silver linings and you know, you know, we'd shoot for a tar- target, wouldn't get it. But out of that, by determination to to win um, and grow in that area, you'd find then uh, either feedback or lessons learned, uh, or simply that it would throw up other particular opportunities you weren't even really thinking of. That's what I love about business, actually, is that despite all the best laid plans, even now, 22 years later, I still get totally blown away by things that we never expected and then happening and then seizing that opportunity as well.
0: I do think that being in a, you know, a, a smaller founder-led firm where you've got sort of a strategy driv- driven by a smaller number of people, you can pivot, you can be much more nimble and you can pick up opportunities, I think, more readily. Can you tell me about how you funded the business during this sort of period of, of you know quite
1: uh, a considerable growth? Um, well, that was simple. It's £20,000 each. And, um, and that was out of um, either redundancy money or savings. And it's fair to say that um, uh, we also, uh, we we didn't want to go and take over drafts or borrowing or anything. So we did it all out of cash and have done ever since. And I think that's good. I mean, I think there's a strong case for doing it out of your own money uh, because you then have to succeed. Madeline's always said uh, that with anybody that develops business, uh, preference would that they get zero salary and that they only get commission. And the reason being is that um, it puts a fire in their belly. So if we hadn't have generated revenue within six months um, and with big institutions, that's not necessarily straightforward, um, we would have been in trouble.
0: But let me ask this, if you've got some external funding, Mm. I mean, it's incredible that you've achieved what you have. What would that parallel universe have looked like? Yeah,
1: absolutely. And I, I often think about that and often kick myself because you're absolutely right. Um, but we are what we are in terms of our own appetite for risk. Mm-hmm. And I think that was very important to me, that I wouldn't have felt comfortable for me, and I envy people like the Richard Bransons of this world and others that are able to uh, understand the power of funding mm-hmm. and and then uh, magnify what they're doing. So I am at the cautious end of, of the business world where we keep... Uh, reserves. We went through that six-year recession for us. It was six years, starting 2007 until 2013, and uh, um, and we didn't make any redundancies, didn't lose any people uh, because we used the cash pile to keep us going through that. Mm-hmm. Not p- probably something that many business people would consider uh, to be great business. They probably think that's a bit of the soft end. But we we are what we are, and we choose our own style, and that was ours.
0: So you made a conscious decision as business leaders to, through that sort of six-year recession, where clearly the property market was was hit very hard, to, uh, to look after your staff, to not make redundancies, um, and, did, you know, what was the benefit? Because other, you know, the, the books and the banks um, might have said, you know what, use it as an opportunity to, um, uh, to cut back, uh, the the overheads, etc. But you obviously thought that that was not the right thing for, for you
1: and yeah. your business. So what yeah. benefits did you see from that? Yes, I mean, uh, there are benefits, but of course it wasn't for benefits that we did it. I just, it's it's just part of our, our values uh, that when you build a team, when you grow what feels like a family, and it always seems to feel like a family to a founding person of a firm, uh, you've selected these people, built, built the team and then to go and carve off part of the team just because of recession seems too brutal and you know we are, we are what we are in terms of our values and our particular nature for me I'm uh, at the risk averse end of the business scale um, so taking on funding is something that I feel uncomfortable nervous about uh, I'd rather grow out of cash but then at the same time then when we got uh um with accumulating cash I'd rather keep onto it so that we can either use, use it to ride recessions as we did then and be we able to keep people uh in in their position and at the same time then use that for growth and funding uh those experiments with things like marketing pr and other such things which then can fuel your growth but there's no doubt when i look back that some business people would say uh, you know that was that was soft you should have made cutbacks, possibly. And they would say, and you haven't been uh, ambitious enough by taking on funding and escalating the growth. And I think there's no doubt that we would be even bigger than we've got to uh, by using funding. But we we have our style. And I think it's far more important to be comfortable in your own skin and grow the business that you are comfortable with. Because ultimately, we weren't really growing a business to create you know wealth for ourselves to start with it was a case of well here is an opportunity because uh, the government is dispossessing the client departments of their lawyers so there was the opportunity and it was a case of just well let's do that but then as time went by we realized that we could create a truly great business but it was that that became the objective to create a truly great business and then scale it because we could Rather than what's the quickest route to becoming super rich, that just never was on the agenda.
0: It's like long term and adhering to your values, and so you can kind of sleep at yeah. night. As well,
1: you know, well, whatever. there's that, but also, do you know what? And I think a lot of founders would say this: just we have got some fantastic people in the firm. In fact, they're all fantastic as far as I'm concerned. If you were to ask me, if you had a golden ticket, to say right, without any hassle at all, you could pick a person, they could. Uh, so and they and you could have them leave i can't think of one not one we've got about 100 people now in the firm that's where you get the satisfaction business to be able to grow that firm and, and actually see that you create an environment they they love working and you love them working within it as well yeah. and so uh, uh yes the byproduct is that you can make profit and yes you become you know you want to make profit so that you can fuel even more growth and create more jobs it doesn't feel as though the ambition is to create jobs, but it's actually the end point is, is that you work with these fantastic people and you want more of them to work with.
0: Yeah. Um, g- doubling back a bit on something we talked about earlier, y- you and your business as a disruptor. Um, and I think there are a number of different ways in which, um, you know, you've been very visionary and, that you know, and the legal sector has kind of caught up with you. I had to catch up with you, particularly sort of post-pandemic oh. uh, or during the pandemic. Well, a few different things. The first is that the, the way that you um, have separated out some of your infrastructure, um, so you very you have a very clear sales team, and you know which I think is very interesting, and just I mean very main, mainstream in any other sector to have a sales team. Um, and to have very clear kind of strategic roles and you know, the, the separation between doing the job of being a lawyer and doing the, the, the sort oh. of the management and, and the other business piece and the sales et etc, um, and then separately that you were um, uh, operating as a remote working business before law firm before anyone else really in any meaningful way thought about it um, yeah. I wonder if you might tell us about that because now the rest of the world is catching up with remote and hybrid working and just sharing some of your experiences as a firm and actually what you think from your much longer term experience makes hybrid working work most effectively for the individual and for the firm.
1: Yeah gosh there's an awful lot in that uh, uh, Claire there's a lot of uh, points that you raise but actually that they all do work together because the The way that it developed, it was intertwining, dealing with all of those issues. So the start point for us was, how are we going to achieve uh, traction with these institutional, these large-scale clients? And the first point was, well, we need the right lawyers. We need good quality specialist solicitors. So we're in the marketplace to find top quality solicitors. And actually, sometimes they just don't like doing business development. And also, they don't like doing non-chargeable. And also, they... You, by and large, hate doing things like KYC, opening files, and sending out bills, and it goes on and on and on. And so, taking that principle together with the fact that if you don't like doing something, you're not going to be very good at it, then I started to speak to 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 mates of mine that would work in the pharma, pharma uh, you know, pharmaceutical industry, and say, "What do you do?" I remember talking to a very good pal of mine who. Uh, worked at one of the big pharma companies. And I said, tell me how you train your medical reps. He says, well, why? And he said, well, because I'm thinking about doing the same thing in the legal world. And he said, "But well, why don't you do like they do in the legal world? And I said, well, they use solicitors to sell legal services. Now I won't tell you his response, but it, let's put it this way. He did find it amusing. And uh, and so I learned what, he, uh, what they do in that industry. And they have very comprehensive programs to train their medical reps who won't be pharmacologists necessarily. And, uh, and we went into the exercise of selecting people based on the skills to be able to sell, but also their ability to be to, able to do technical sales and then also to be able to create a technical, what I would call a, uh, that trust report, technical report, and a personal report. You need those three. It's the most, I would say, one of the most challenging areas for sales if you're not a lawyer, Mm-hmm. out of all the sales disciplines. But then it became further than that. It became not just about, well, how do we do sales without using this? And by the way, I have to say now, winding forward, we do have lawyers that love doing business development. And we've got a mix of, of what I would say is our core sales team and mm-hmm. also client partners that love developing business and doing the work. So we've got the right. It wasn't anything religious. It was just simply that how do I accelerate sales? And at the same time, I need to take on good technical specialist lawyers. Into the mix also was the fact that we would have solicitors that would, as I say, not like to send bills, work in progress. Now I'm a numbers person. I mean, you can't be a chemical engineer without being a numbers person. And I didn't understand uh, how it was that uh, solicitors seemed to be so reluctant to send out bills or uh, even look at such things as work in progress or aged debtors. Um, so, not only did they not want to send a bill, but they didn't want to collect the money either. And I thought this was bonkers. Um, so, we put that into the hands of the accountants, of the accounts department. And we, so bit by bit, we started to take out those things that either they weren't good at, that is, solicitors weren't good at, or they didn't like doing. And in fact, this is well received. I've never had a. <laughs> it was, yeah. I, I've never had a solicitor say, oh, please let me send them. <laughs> And in fact, in fact, one of the things that uh, is quite, uh, quite, quite funny. I remember a conversation when uh, an invoice went out and had literally reams and reams of narrative on the invoice. I said, why do you do that? It's all because you put narrative as to what it's all for. Mm. I said, well, how can an account system send an invoice with narrative? I said, no, no, we're going to stop that. So we said, but if you want to send narrative, just send it on a separate piece of paper. The the invoice so all of our invoices say it's it's a bill for the period of such and such for and work time up to that particular date that's its standard wording mm-hmm. so then we were able to go through the process of having an accounts department and if the particular lawyer wanted to or the person that was managing that client wanted to give narrative then they could in an accompanying letter and it right. was simple things like that that mm-hmm. were able to allow us to get the organizational systems in place so that the right people would do the right job. Yeah and in fact, then, of course, going through that process of having, uh, making sure that the right people aren't doing the wrong job, you then start to be able to say, right, I can have the very best of the people taking care of those particular separate types of things. That's why we now operate what I call, uh, or not me actually, it was ICI that invented it. It was called the twin track system. ICI found out it must have been about 50 years ago. That if you wanted to promote the fantastic professor who's going to invent the next penicillin, yeah, and pay more, if with a mono track system, you just end up creating a very poor manager of 2,000 people and you lose a fantastic scientist. And so they created the trim track. So you could earn as much being the professor with a, a lab assistant as the regional director of 2,000 people. So you separate out the technical track from the commercial track. That's what we've done. So we have people that will operate the business and develop the business growth uh, as well as run the operations. And our solicitors just do lawyering, which is what they just want to do.
0: Yeah. I think that that then speaks to um, the very basis of what sort of firm, what model of firm are you? And are you an institutional brand, and an institutional pipeline? institutional investment? Or are you a collective of just individual practices brought together under one umbrella? Because they have different dynamics and different needs, I mean,
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And I'm obsessed about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is only one team. I, I, I repeatedly say within the firm, it's just we are one firm. And this is what we are. And if it doesn't if that doesn't suit you, if that doesn't meet your aspirations, then we're not right for you. And in fact, that's why we've stayed specialists on real estate. and will we'll do for many years to come, I have no doubt, because uh, being becoming full service has extra challenges. There's no doubt, and it's very it's much more difficult to operate one set of not necessarily the values uh, or your core identity, but actually the business purpose becomes much more challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at one particular time on our website, I'd actually have a, um, a feed from Property Week on the home page. Now, there aren't many law firms that can do that because there'd be other conflicting departments saying, Why have you got Property Week being displayed? You know, I, I want to have whatever else journal is for their particular sector showing on the home page as well. Yeah. So it's it, it sort of almost a bit of naughtiness on my part. I lo- love being able to do things that are uh, competitor. Uh, full service firms couldn't do
0: by but being was- sort of laser sharp in your focus and strategy. Yeah. Um, okay. So can we talk about just about sort of the longer term future? And you know, what's so one of the big things that is very topical in the legal press at, at the moment is firms seeking external funding, kind of considering an IPO. I mean, is that longer term? You know, especially as you know, you're a first generation firm, and eventually you'll move to the next generation. Would you look at external funding? Would you look at an IPO? And if so, what would be the the, the rationale for that?
1: Um, well, we have. And uh, part of building a firm which is going to continue for years to come, um, all founders face this. Uh, two types of founders, ones that like to see the firm collapse when they've gone so they can demonstrate to everybody that they're being missed. And yeah. then there are the others that um, actually want to build something which will continue well past their departure from the business because they've created something, they don't want to see it fall apart. Um, and I'm sure, Claire, you and I are both in the latter category and want to see it continue for years to come. So you face the challenge then. How? In my case, I've thought long and hard. Our lawyers, I mean, you mentioned earlier about remote uh, working. Well, to get access to the best lawyers, we needed to, ha- as, uh, you know, it was a case of bit by bit by bit. How do we become more and more and more attracted to the very best lawyers? Well, in the early part of the conversation, I said, yes, we'll remove, uh, remove the bits that they don't like doing. Well, that's an obvious one. But actually, a fair number of them didn't live uh, anywhere near our office. And so, and at the time, that was still Taunton even though all our business was in London, Manchester and Birmingham and around the rest of the country. So they didn't want to move. So I said, well, fine, we'll find a way of allowing you to continue where you are. So it was actually because we had a remote location in Taunton to where all the lawyers were. And uh, and that's then uh, uh, motivated us to find a way of which they could do that. And in those days, it was paper files. But we found a way and it, and and it worked very well. Of course, things became easier when the electronic DMS systems came along, but the technology is really only a part to remote working. Mm-hmm. And um, what these lawyers were joining us for was to be able to, to start with, it was just to work in a specialist real estate firm, but they started to really enjoy the idea of the remote working. In fact, then it became a bit of a contrast with the firms that were leaving. They were leaving full service firms, sometimes uh, with more politics than maybe they'd wished, with... Uh, being in the office culture, where they'd have to work longer hours than they were hoping to. And then they'd find themselves seeing that life was a lot more tailored to what they were hoping to have their legal career go along, that is doing legal work and within a reasonable number of hours. By this stage, of course, because we're only taking solicitors on that 10 years qualified or more, they've probably seen it done, it written the book and things, so they're not really you know, they don't. They don't want to be part of a climbing a ladder anymore. They they want to just be able to um, do what they like doing and keep it in balance. So it it wasn't a particular intention to create remote work. It wasn't a particular intention to, you know, do anything as such. It was just really how do we get the best lawyers for the best clients, and then things evolved in that way.
0: Then how how did you? What would you suggest in terms of works? In terms of ensuring integration because it sounds to me they came to you and to some extent they they stayed with you because you were giving them what they wanted and they were able to operate do the things just that they love take away the stuff they don't and do it from their home with flexibility but then how how did you actually integrate them into the business and the values of the firm
1: yeah well uh... The, the um, and I'm very aware that, that, that um, I, sh- I should get eventually to the, to the point about IPO, but this all we'll come de- back, Tori. Yeah, but this all feeds into it because if you're aiming for the best lawyers and then for the best clients, and then you find ways to attract them by taking out bits they don't like, but also then enabling them to work where they want to, then you say, Well, how do you integrate as one team? There's no doubt, whenever it is dispersed, then they do tend to. Now, this is where. Um, and another one of the laws of unintended consequences. Because one day I was speaking to one of our sisters and I was saying, oh, I must introduce you to this other lawyer who is at um, uh, the other end of the country and uh, could be you know, helpful on this particular project. He says, oh, I know Emma ever so well. Oh yes, we, we often speak to each other in a WhatsApp group. I said, what? And he says, well, a load of us are. Now, of course, in creating a framework in which People can have balance in their life, work from home, and uh, a lot of female solicitors were starting to join. In fact, I think to this day now, I think we're currently operating about 55% to 60% of female lawyers in the firm.
0: Mm, so it's, but it's, it's of women and also presumably men with family commitments as well. Oh, yes,
1: the whole ambit, absolutely the whole range it's um uh, for whatever reasons that they need um that that either balance now it it wasn't that people joined us so they could have balance it was not that at all but that became one of the byproduct benefits Mm. and then of course it became an attractive feature for people then to come and join us and then they found ways of being able to connect up now of course the firm we do we do do a number of things trying to join them up whether it's briefings to the whole team uh, whether it is parties and so on, but that really is the detail. I think when people have got the benefits of being part of a collective and they really like what they've joined, they want to share in that with other colleagues and they find ways of being able to talk to each other. So I never expected that being a you know sort of business creator and actually you know feeling as though it's all down to me to make these things happen. I was really delighted to see that the people themselves wanted to be able to communicate. Now we this is the point about, it- I, but this leads to IPO. Yeah, because how do you when you have these people that love being a part of what they're a part of are glad to have joined this organization and then could never go back to the world they've left how do you protect that for the future and uh, I've worked out very early on in fact people told me if we were to ever sell to another law firm they'd leave because they've left that we Mm. are what we are we're not right for everybody but for the people that joined us They like this and they want to keep, they want to stay as part of that. So that starts to limit very much your options. And I came to the conclusion eventually that if I'm going to keep the thing going with the same culture and values beyond my time in the business, then we need to separate out ownership from executive. And that's why I worked out and we're working towards this, that one day we will get listed on AIM. And, uh, and then I'm held to account. And if I'm not doing a good job, they can sack me. And that's fair enough as far as I'm concerned.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, and we've talked about the three key things. If you're kind of shooting for an IPO, and there is a brilliant article that, that um, we've both read on this from First Round Review, where it talks about, you know, if you're looking to, to go for an IPO, you should ensure right up front you've got visibility and predictability. Well, clearly you've got both of those. As a firm um, and you've got clear visibility in the market, you've got predictability in terms of uh, predictable work, workflow, you've got a very predictable um, talent pool as well within the firm and that you've created a platform that they love. You know, there doesn't sound that there's, there's much sort of coming and going. The second one is... According to this article, ensuring growth potential within your market or diversified markets. And it sounds to me like within real estate, of course, you've got this razor sharp focus, but there's a huge range of service offerings and products and tools within that
1: yeah, I'd like to I'd like to add on that, Claire, as well, because of course our origins with central government and local government, now our private sector work ex- exceeds what we do for the public sector. And in fact, there's also another byproduct of these specialists is that now we support a number of major law firms that have real estate teams, but don't either have a resource or the specialists to be able to uh, to take care of well, take either they don't have the capacity or resource to be able to take uh, to look after a big project, and they need us to plug in. Uh, so we will collaborate with the law firms, or we will be a, a partner um, as a subcontractor to them, or we will provide consultancy services um, in support of those firms. And because we're specialists, then uh, it's not awkward. You know, yeah,
0: you're not, not completely saying you're super specialist. No but it prov- it provides huge growth potential again so it kind of ticks that second ipo box as well yeah. and then the third and final one from this particular fantastic article was about eliminating any single point of failure for your business whether it's you know having one you know a very large customer or a very large single distribution partner or a supplier that you're completely dependent on and it sounds to me like you're highly uh, diversified across
1: the yeah, well I'd like to think so, but for any founder, that's the most challenging thing in my view, you know, because, well, A, you start off as a control freak because, of course, it's your baby, you're growing it, and you don't want to hand the baby over to anybody else within the firm even, let alone outside. And then you become used to whether you are a Uh, the founding partner and you've got the key clients well it's very either very difficult to hand those over or to have those clients sometimes say well I I, you know I don't want anybody looking else looking after me I want that particular partner so how do you make yourself replaceable and of course that's the key is Mm. IPO I have to make myself replaceable Madeline has to make herself replaceable we can't have anybody that is irreplaceable at all and so uh, we've gone a long way there by being able to have other people within the team do aspects of what we do. And, uh, and I'm hoping by the end of the next year, and certainly before we can get, go for a listing, is that there, every aspect of what I do, not necessarily by a person, but by various different parts of the team, will do what I do. Yeah, and yeah. and then, um, then that's hopefully mission accomplished then. But that's the most difficult bit.
0: And you know what? That speaks exactly to what uh, Michael Kim of Cobra and Kim was talking about in our last podcast, where he said, yes, you have to make yourself irrelevant to to enable the business to grow. And he, that he regarded uh, one of the biggest or the biggest obstacle to law firm growth and success, um, a founder's own personal ego. Um, and, and it sounds to me that you, you sort of addressed that at a very early stage. Well,
1: yeah, I, I mean, I'd like to think in my case, not necessarily an ego, it's just simply that I like doing it. I think there is a challenge anyway for any leader of a law firm is that essentially bosses want to speak to bosses and, and the bits left in what I do are where I have to speak to bosses of other law firms. And, you know, in supporting other of of law firms, uh, they want to speak to me. Um, and likewise, when I'm recruiting uh, leading lawyers, they want to speak to me. And that's understandable. That's nothing to do with me. It's the fact that I just happen to be Uh, in the role that I'm in and you know and we've got steps in place there are other senior people within the firm are able to take on those roles so I think it's doable in my case hopefully it's nothing to do with ego it's just simply a case that I just got myself into a rut doing that and I need to get myself out of that rut.
0: Yeah so uh, and I know actually you have to uh, go off and and interview someone now for your for your continued (laughs) role before we go for someone who was kind of at the start of the journey Their finger is lingering over the button to to launch their law firm. And based on your 22 years of experience of of running your firm, what would you pass on?
1: Um, I think the the key word would be focus. You can't be all things for people. So decide what it is, who your market's going to be, what you're going to do for that market, and then how you're going to satisfy. I think... I think the sensible thing we did do is start with the client first. When we first went back to thinking about the MOD, what is it that is going to set us apart from all those huge firms that are going to be competing and then put the things in place to be able to achieve that? And there are so many more things. You know, you have to get passionate. If you can't get passionate about it, if you can't get excited to the extent that you, that it doesn't feel like work, you know, I mean, I always joke and actually they don't think they don't see that meant saying anything other than what I seriously mean when I say I really look forward to Fridays and I really look forward to Mondays. And I think that sort of that's why I call it a life-life balance, because nobody that I've ever met um, would become a professional to then call it work so they can spend their life trying to escape it so they can only have home life. Now, I say that we should have a professional life and home life in balance. You should be you know, really engaged in your professional life so that you you enjoy as many aspects of it as possible and you've managed to get rid of all the bits that are irrelevant to that enjoyment. And at the same time, then your home life, of course, should be uh, prioritised. And then if you can work the two together so that they are in balance, then you've got effectively two hobbies, one of which is paid. And, and I would say that, look, you know, that, without passion for what you're doing you ain't going to get there because you're going to get so many things go wrong along the way there's all sorts of you know troubles that will throw themselves at you which you'd never expected and without that passion and absolute obsession you won't drive through those periods and you'll need to
0: thanks so much so inspiring so many things for me to take away from that sort of personally and professionally it's been fabulous I hope if um, if you've been listening, thank you so much for sticking with us to the end. Um, I think it's been a really fascinating discussion, as I say. I've taken a lot from it, and I hope you have too. Um, Peter's contact details will be uh, available at the end of this podcast, so um, please do feel free to get in contact with Peter if you have any questions or suggestions or want to work with Peter's firm on all sort of real estate specialist issues. I'm sure Peter will be delighted to talk to you about that, as well as colleagues. If you've enjoyed this, please do like it. As they say, like and subscribe, like and share. That would be really appreciated. And hopefully you'll join us for our next podcast in the series of Law Firm Founder Conversations. So thank you so much. Thank you again, Peter, and hope to see you all soon. Thanks. Bye.